Thank you very much for tuning into the Leadership Works podcast. On a programming note, Dr. John Bedker recorded this episode less than a week before the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Its timeliness for you cannot be overstated. The role of leadership in America's gun culture and gun violence is critical. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Leadership Works podcast. I'm your host, Dr. John Bedker, and I'm very happy you're with us today. Today, we're going to talk about gun violence. Not the pros and cons and all the politics about it, because goodness knows there's plenty of that. We're going to talk about leadership in a democracy, and we're going to use gun violence as the example. So, here we go. Let's begin with a fairly famous author, person who knows all about data and analytics. That would be W. Edwards Deming. One of his famous quotes we'll start with. Without data, you're just someone with an opinion. And certainly about this issue of gun violence, there's lots of opinion. But we're going to use data and not politics. Look at data and talk about how that should help inform our leadership, focus, and decision-making. Well, a few opening comments to begin. Uh, To change our world, that's what this is kind of about today. To change our world requires us to get involved. And hopefully this Leadership Works podcast today will help you want to get involved. Not from afar, but from within. And we don't want to be pointing fingers just at the people that are our elected representatives. We want to also look in that mirror and say that we can be part of the solution, that we can have a leadership role in this issue of gun violence. Our country is not nearly as cohesive as we thought it was for decades. There are many reasons for that. Certainly gun violence is one of those tragic outcomes of that lack of cohesion in the United States. But in reading the literature and preparing for this podcast, it seems that there are three touch points that I want to mention. One is this separation from the truth. Now, I've talked about that in previous podcasts, but I think that's a, that's a key point. Many people in America are separating themselves from truth. They're believing these conspiracy theories, these fictions, these falsehoods, and declaring that as truth, when in fact it's not. Well, what happens then is they lead into a bit of a world of isolation, social isolation, and that allows them to reinforce that separation from the truth as they isolate among those of a similar mind. Well, what happens over time is people do, in fact, become radicalized. That's a big word, but it manifests itself in many ways. Could be in speech, certainly in politics. But here today, we're going to talk about gun violence, and it certainly does manifest itself in that way as well. From where does it come? Well, it could be enabled by this public discourse. You know, we listen to our radios and 
TV stations, read our magazines and our newspapers that are comfortable for us, that we agree with. So this public discourse is another reinforcer, but there's also public policy. And there's certainly public policy and law about guns. And we'll talk about that a little bit today as well. So the conclusion here simply is our country is divided. It's not nearly as cohesive as we thought it was. And that's probably gone on for some long period of time, decades. What we're seeing is a series of inequalities, all kinds of inequalities in our world today, and certainly in our United States. Inequality is a constant, sadly. Certainly income inequality, we talk about that now with inflation and other economic issues affecting every American family. Race inequality, lots of news about that and certainly well-documented race inequality. Gender inequality, certainly a recent uh, leaked Supreme Court opinion saying that we're about to uh, have an opinion that says that women don't quite have the same rights and choices about their own bodies. So we'll just put that in an umbrella, if you will, of legal inequality. And it's more than just the gender. I think the legal inequality is quite pronounced as well. Educational inequality, certainly through the pandemic, we've learned those that continue to have access to quality and affordable education and those that have not leads to a certainly technology inequality. People that have internet, that access then to education, but people that don't have internet. Now, those of us that have it, we think that that's normal and standard, customary, it's usual, but not so for many people. No internet. Healthcare inequality, well documented for years. Healthcare costs and the access to healthcare, certainly quality healthcare, there's huge inequality in our country about that. And of course, political inequality. We have a situation now where oftentimes 60 votes are required. So if you're in the majority, that's not good enough. You need 60 votes to make that legislation become law, oftentimes, and that can be difficult. So effectively, the minority can have a huge voice. Well, that is real political inequality. Well, what does that conclude? It concludes that we're really not one nation. And we may not have been one nation for a long time. We are a nation divided. When I grew up, there was this notion that a rising tide would raise all boats. Well, as an undergrad, I went to the U.S. Naval Academy. I'm very proud of that. And that notion was sort of funny, sort of silly, but absolutely true. A rising tide will, in fact, raise all boats. 
But that's not the view that Americans hold. No. In the United States, there's a more common view seeing country as me and not a we. Somehow, some way, if I can poke a hole in that other person's boat, take advantage of them somehow, some way, that my boat will rise. And if theirs does not, or it sinks, that's okay. That's just the way that it is. This idea that the rising tide would raise all boats is not an American held value any longer. Now this tragic ideology manifests itself day in and day out. And again, sadly, it has for a very long time. Its likelihood to change seems out of reach. We've talked about this often 60 volt, 60 vote threshold in the U.S. Congress to get something done, which really enables the minority to control. So, what must leaders do? Well, that's the focus of this episode of the Leadership Works podcast. And I've chosen gun violence as the vehicle to express this tragic reality in our human condition. Let's begin with the ultimate test of leadership, the definition of leadership. What is leadership really? What does leadership ultimately boil down to? Well, it's a simple axiom, but a very difficult axiom to execute. Leadership boils down to this. Do the right thing. If you take nothing away from the remainder of this podcast, please capture that. Leadership boils down to do the right thing. Simple to say, but very difficult to execute. A very difficult axiom to live by, to say, I am going to do the right thing. That's what leaders do. Leadership today is challenged in this very difficult and often chaos-driven world we live in. So we're going to focus on gun violence in this leadership lesson today for each of us to say, let's talk about doing the right thing and what that entails. I'm going to read some figures, factual figures, verified figures, documented figures, stipulated. It's not a debate. These are sadly and tragically the real numbers. Talk about daily gun violence in the United States. Every day, 321 people 
are shot in the United States. I know. Stop right there. 321 people shot every day in the United States. 111 of those are shot and killed. 210 survive but have injuries. Think about what that future portends. 95 are intentionally shot by someone else but survive. 42 of these people each day are murdered. 65 die from gun suicide. These numbers are shocking, tragic. And you have to say, if we're going to do the right thing, are we okay with that? To do the right thing, are we okay with 321 people dying? I don't think so. I don't think so. 321 people shot in the United States each and every day. 111 of them killed every day. Are we okay with that? Is that doing the right thing? Now again, not politics, not any of the other stuff, but is that the right thing from a leadership point of view? Is that okay? I think the answer is no. Let's talk about younger people, 1 to age 17, children and teens, ages 1 to 17, every day, 22 children and teens are shot in the United States. Five of them are going to die from gun violence. Three of these children are murdered. 17 of them will have gunshot injuries. And again, think about what that future portends for these young people. Eight of them were intentionally shot by someone else. Two of them would have taken their own lives in suicide. Eight of these children are shot in instances of what's known as family fire. A shooting involving an improperly stored or misused gun found in the home, resulting in injury or death. Every day. Every day. So let's look at what happens annually. All people, all ages in the United States. Every year. 117 1,345 people are shot. Ask yourself the leadership question. You okay with that? Should we not change anything? Should we leave it as it is? That's fine. 40,620 people die from gun violence every year. You okay with that? Is it all right? 15,343 are murdered. Same questions. 76,725 survive but have injuries. How about this one? 23,891 people die every 
year from gun suicide. Leadership is about doing the right thing. 23,891 people dying of gun suicide. So when we do nothing, are we doing the right thing? There's another 3,554 each year that survive an attempted gun suicide. What's that future look like for those people? These numbers are staggering. They're concerning. Having them continue and to do nothing is not the right thing. Leadership is about doing the right thing. Let's go back to the young people for just a minute, those aged 1 to 17, children and teens. 1,839 children and teens die from gun violence every year. 992 are murdered. Are we okay with that? Is that all right? Should we not change anything? Is the status quo all right? How about 693 children and teens dying every year from gun suicide? That's just the young people. Tragic. So let's talk about guns in general, if you can do that. But I'll take a moment here and quickly touch on this. How many Americans own guns? Well, there are approximately 121 firearms in circulation for every 100 residents in the United States. The United States is by far the most heavily armed society in the world. This is according to the Geneva-based Small Arms Survey, which is a research group in Switzerland. Now, gun ownership is becoming less common across the country, though. Only about one in three households owned a firearm in 2016. That's down from nearly half in 1990. But now think about that. But today, when only one in three U.S. households own firearms, we have 121 firearms in circulation for every 100 residents. Shocking. Ownership varies. States like Montana, 66% households own firearms. But New Jersey, the other end of the scale, only 8% own firearms. Gun laws, gun policies vary by states as well. Gun laws are much more permissive in rural states, including like Idaho, Kentucky, Wyoming. Mississippi has the most permissive U.S. laws, according to the Giffords Law Center, which is a gun control group. Residents of Mississippi don't need a permit to carry loaded weapons, whether openly or concealed. Sales of assault weapons and large capacity magazines are legal. Buyers do not face waiting periods. State doesn't have a red flag law. So if you were a person identified as a problem, you're not flagged. Not just Mississippi, but 28 other states 
have enacted stand your ground laws. Now, what that allows for is that people can use deadly force when they feel threatened. Hmm. Pretty amazing situation that we're developing. Well, so when we go back to these policymakers, the government, the leaders, I'm using that word in quotes now, um, what do they say? Well, the previous president, President Trump, had a lot to say about gun violence, mass shootings. Following some mass shootings, he gave a speech, television, October 2019, where he said, mental illness and hatred pulls the trigger, not the gun. He goes on to say, it's a big mental illness problem. A sick mind pulls the trigger. These people are mentally ill and nobody talks about it. He was asked about gun control August 18th of 2019. He said specifically, I don't want to forget that this is a mental health problem. Well, there's been a lot of studies about that. I'm going to touch on them here briefly. There is quite a lot of literature. Studies began in 1990, updated in 1994. The literature just continues. There's quite a rich and robust body of it, which concludes that most people with mental illnesses are not violent. I think we'd like to think they are. They also calculated the attributable risk. How much of all violence was due to having a mental condition? These studies have varying numbers, but between 3 and 5% of all violence was due to mental illness alone. A very small percentage. I'll just mention two other quick items about abandoning this sort of starting assumption that acts of gun violence and certainly mass shooting violence driven primarily by these diagnosable pathopsychological, psychiatric, isolated lone wolf, in quotes, lone wolf individuals and must rather situate the destructive motivations within a larger social structure and cultural script. And I think that's what we need to focus on, this larger cultural script. That's a quote from the literature. I'll conclude with this last quote. There is no existing or forthcoming unified theory of impaired brain functioning or of cognitive mood or behavioral dysfunction that could adequately explain mass shootings or multiple victim gun homicides. Mental health, important, certainly, absolutely needs to be included in the mix. But as the literature suggests, over a long period of time, 
and brought up to the current day, it might range somewhere between 3 and 5%. So what about that other 90 to 90 plus percent? Well, let's talk about that. And this really gets to the problem-solving portion of this podcast. The top-down approach has failed. Making mental illness the boogeyman is not accurate, is not valid. But the top-down really has failed. Well, some might say that there's going to be a likely change in the House of Representatives in the United States Congress and the Senate. And so the top-down leadership seems unlikely at best for all the good intentions, for all the prayers, for all the condolences given after another death from a gun. We're left with an increasingly large gun culture in the United States with increasing gun violence, mass shootings, and an absence of will by our leaders at the top. It's going to be bottom-up leadership that is needed. The majority of Americans want a safe country, a safe home, a safe church, a safe school, a safe movie theater, a safe grocery store. But we have none of these. Why? Because people with guns shoot people. This is the problem. There's no debate or uncertainty. No. People with guns shoot people. Not all people. Let's be clear. Not all people. But over 117,000 people in the U.S. are shot every year. Over 40,000 die from gun violence every year. What about our laws and public policy? Well, there's been a fair amount of debate and work in our courts about that, but let's begin with the Second Amendment. It's quite clear. encourage everyone to read it. Second Amendment states that it's a well-regulated militia that is entitled. Not every single person, not every person can have as many guns of any type, as many automatic weapons, as many weapons of war, high magazine holding weapons to fire many bullets a second, to go to a church, a school, a playground, and have the person next to you have a gun with them in their purse or backpack or visible on their person. Is this the country you want to live in? This is the gun culture in the United States. Here is a simply stated solution, but one which seems very, very difficult to attain. If people in, as the Second Amendment states, well-regulated militias had guns, law enforcement, members of the active military, the guard and the reserve members of military, people that receive regular and ongoing training and evaluation. These are people that by our constitution should be enabled 
to have guns. Hunters, marksmen, sport enthusiasts. I can see that opportunity. It may not be my choice, but I can see how it could be their choice. Individual freedoms and individual liberties are not what this solution is about, to take those away. These hunters, these marksmen, these sports enthusiasts may keep weapons, but in an armory, where their local, well-regulated militia is located, and they can have access to their weapons, not taking people's weapons, still their weapons, when needed. Their elk gun, for instance, during elk season. Their shotgun during pheasant season, etc., etc. They too could receive qualification, ongoing training, and safety instruction at their local armory. The local armory would house these individually owned weapons in a safe, guarded, and secure facility. There's no need for automatic or semi-automatic weapons. These type of weapons could be eliminated in a federal buyback program. This effort could have a significant impact on mass shootings in the United States. The notion of ghost guns should also be eliminated. Chains of custody and ownership could be clearly understood. Violations of these new laws should have very strict and significant consequences. This is if we care about a safer country, if we want to be leaders, if we want to do the right thing. Not politics, but the best interests of our people. The majority of Americans want a safer world. People with guns shoot people. That is a fact. It is not exclusively a mental illness issue. It's a gun culture issue. Let's go back to our Second Amendment and have only well-regulated militia have guns. Others only for sport or marksmanship and only after training with the gun stored in an armory guarded by the well-regulated militia. Ladies and gentlemen, the gun culture issue in our country, certainly gun violence, certainly mass shootings, is an important leadership opportunity, not politics, leadership opportunity to do the right thing. Thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Be safe. Thank you again for tuning into the Leadership Works podcast. As the tragedy of the mass shooting at Ross Elementary in Uvalde, Texas unfolds, Dr. John Bedker will provide additional leadership insights in a future episode. Leaders must be committed to taking action.